Good morning. It's interesting watching uh, the, uh, the generations, and especially my generation, the generation beneath me, the millennials and Gen Z and those that are, those that are coming. And it's been interesting seeing them interact in this world that is uh, full of media. So many voices, you, you can find an expert in anything, you go look them up and seek them out and listen to the things that they have to say. And I, the, the media, we've, we've seen, for, I think for a long time there was a trust in the media. They're going to tell you the truth, just what you see is, what, is what's real. And, and we've been really very disillusioned by the voices that go across our televisions and across our broadcasts of various forms, across the internet. It doesn't matter where they are. There are charlatans, there are liars, there are deceivers, and there is a lot of deception. And so young people were seeing them gravitate to voices like Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan Jocko Willink. And the reason why is because even if these guys are secular, I think Peterson is getting very, very, very close to uh, the Christian faith if he's not there yet. Even though they're secular, they're giving substance. Joe Rogan's talking about things that people are thinking about that nobody is talking about. I don't advise listening to the podcast. There's some colorful language, but there is a gravitation there, and it's for a reason. Jocko Willink, former military guy, kind of a heavy hitter, he's giving real-life practical suggestions to men who are just looking for direction. There's a YouTube channel called Dad, How Do I? That's why we call it Daddy YouTube or Papa YouTube. If I got a question, where do I go? YouTube. Get the answer there. This channel, Dad, How Do I, gives extremely, extremely basic instruction. How to make spaghetti. Some of the, and, and there's nearly 5 million subscribers. It's an extremely popular YouTube channel. Some of his most popular videos that have millions of views are how to tie a tie. How to shave my face. And another one that was from him to his listeners, and the title of the video is, I am proud of you. This middle-aged man who has millions of followers, the vast majority of whom he does not know, and who are typing in, Dad, how do I? He's saying, I'm proud of you. That's a kind of father hunger. They're looking for things. They're looking for direction. They're looking for answers. They're looking for some practical advice for how to live. And the interesting thing is that phenomenon is not limited to the broader secular world. It comes into the church just the same. For the past several decades, Christianity in general, and it is no exception in the churches of Christ, has embraced a kind of theological minimalism that relegates Christianity to a few points of doctrine 
a few that we would say these are the main things, and most of it has to do with one hour that we spend on a weekly basis together. The scriptures say, be ye holy, for I am holy. And many have no idea what that means. They see the God in heaven. They believe that he exists. They know the command, generally speaking, be ye holy, but how do you go do it? What does it look like to live it out practically? What am I to do when I wake up in the morning? When I go to work, when I go to school, when I'm struggling with this, what do I do with my money? Young men, how do I find a girl and how do I reach out to her in a good way? These kinds of questions are real questions that people have. And there's a lot of times very little answer. A young man comes to his dad, he says, Dad, I'm struggling with lust, what do I do? And this is, this is what theological minimalism does to a people it does to christianity the, the son comes with a question that every single boy is going to have at some point especially if they're spiritually minded what do i do what do i do this is a real struggle the dad scratches his head and he can think of a few verses about baptism and maybe a few verses about singing and yet for this question there's no answer this is theological Minimalism. And a good Christian theology is, is one, when Jesus came into the world, he went straight to the core, didn't he? You had people that were superficially doing some things outwardly. Jesus went right to the core of man, went right to the heart. He brought theology there. And the biblical promise is that when things are right there, when things are right in the inner mind, when they're right in the inner man, then you will naturally flow out applications and ways to do things. And so I want to talk to uh, some of those things in a new series that I'm starting this morning, uh, which is called A Theology That Hits the Dirt. You remember last week from Psalm 119:105 when David said, your word is a lamp to my feet. And what he was saying is, as I'm walking through life, your word gives me instruction on where to go. It tells me what to do. It comes down to the ground. It doesn't, a good theology is a theology of practice. A good theology is a practical one. It's one that young people can say, here's what you do. Here's what I should do every day. When I go to school, here's how I should be around my peers. These are the ideas that I should hold close to me. Here's how I should interact. Here's how I should speak. This is what I should do at work. A good theology is a theology of practice. And the thing of the Bible is, it doesn't, it doesn't just give us a standard. Like, say, say a dad says to his son, build a table. And the son says, well, I know what a table is, and I know what it means to build, but there's an impasse, right? And sometimes that's the way we do Christianity, is there's a table, that's what you need to do. You, you know what it means to build, so just go build it. Imagine a son that comes, his dad just gives him that, just go do it. He's going to have a lot of questions. I mean, there's so many questions, how to join the wood and how, how, to, how the dimensions are to be. There's so many questions that goes into the practical of getting there, and a good theology is one that does that. The Bible doesn't just say crucify your sins. 
We know the Bible says be dead to your sins. The Bible says die to your sins. But it doesn't just leave us saying die to your sins, kill your sins. It actually gives instructions on how to do it. The Bible doesn't just say don't be anxious about anything, right? We know this. This is one of the most anxious times, I think, in our history. If we look at the amount of prescription medications that are being used to solve it, it's one of the most anxious times, one of the most depressed times, and the Word of God says something of it. It doesn't just say, don't do this. It actually tells us practically how we can get there. And so that's really what this series is going to be all about. I want you to see this scripture, which is kind of the, kick, the kickoff for it. This is a promise of scripture. You have, Paul is talking about all scripture right here is breathed out by God. We did a lesson on this, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that, so this is the result. If the scripture is brought in, the reason I started with the Word of God series is because I want to get to the practical stuff, but where's it found? It's not found in opinions. It's not found in this big faction over here. It's not found by this you know, person's voice. It's found in the word and the promise of the scriptures is that it will reprove, it will teach, it will correct, and it will train the end result being that the man of God may be complete, equipped for how many good works? For every good work. The promise of the scriptures is that when these are brought into your life, you will, you will not be an incomplete ill-equipped person but you will be a complete person who is equipped we need we need to be equipped we need tools in our tool belts in our christian tool belts that we can get out and say i know what to do in this situation when my son comes to me and he asks that question that i said a son's going to ask i want tools in my belt to say son let's talk about that i know exactly how to help you with that because Christianity is not relegated to our Sunday morning worship. The vast majority of it actually isn't lived in the presence of other Christians, is it? It's lived with our wives. It's lived with our husbands. It's lived with our children. They get the brunt of it. It's lived with our coworkers. It's lived with our classmates. It's lived out in the world. It's lived at the grocery store. It's lived dealing with a banker. It's lived buying a house and taking out a loan. And Christianity has something to say of all of these things. And that's really what this is about. So when I was thinking about where should I start in this, I have kind of a long list that's growing. And by the way, if you have a practical suggestion, maybe a question of what, you know, how do we do this? What, what would you say to this? Send it my way. Because this, I, I'm very organic in my sermon series development. Sometimes I've got an idea at the beginning, this is how many lessons I'm going to do. This one I really don't know how long it's going to go, but it's going to at least be a few months. And if you have some suggestions, uh, send them uh, my way, please. But I thought, what better place to start than the start of a person's day? Wake up in the day. How does a Christian wake up? Have you ever thought about that? We're, we're to be different than the world. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We, we do things differently. We act, we act differently. We talk differently. We behave differently. And the reason that our speech and our conduct is different 
is because there's something different going on in our minds. There's something different going on in our hearts. How should a Christian wake up in the morning? What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Well, some people immediately go to the bathroom. Some people, first thing they do is reach over, and I would, I would think this would probably be many. There's an alarm clock there, and nowadays the alarm clock is on your phone. Reach over, shut off the alarm, and immediately flip open the phone. What notifications are there? What emails do I have? What calls do I have? What texts do I have? What social media group has something to say to me that I missed during that few hour window where I was sleeping? That's the way that most people wake up, and I would say Christians need to wake up in a different way. I have five brief suggestions that I want to give. Number one, wake up early enough to meet God before the day begins. At different points in your life, when I was in college, eight o'clock classes was, I thought this is the worst thing in the world. Well, I, because eight o'clock, who wants to go up, who wants to go to class at eight in the morning? And, you know, not forget the fact that all my schooling before that, I'd gone to school at eight in the morning and had to get up even earlier than that. But this time changes, I, I think. Once you have kids, early means something different than it meant before you had kids. So what I'm saying is, you need to get up early enough to meet God, to commune with God, to have some period of fellowship with God before your day goes forward. You're going to interact with your spouse, you're going to interact with your kids, you're going to interact with co-workers and strangers. Why wouldn't we begin our day in the presence of our Creator? Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, you know how early he got up, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Is this just, of all the things that could have been given us in scripture about Jesus and the things that he did, is this just a passing mention? For that matter, is there anything in all of the scriptures that God put there as a matter of coincidence or that showed up there just because? Was God saying something? You know, our first instinct when we look at a scripture like this is, it's, I, don't see, I don't see a command there. Isn't that our first instance, our first instinct? I don't see a command. Show me the command. Where, where does it say we, that we have to do this? The interesting thing is most of the Bible is not a series of commands. Are there a lot of commands? Yes, there are. There are many. But the majority of the Bible is a story of God's providential hand working through history through men and, men and women who we see glimpses and snapshots into their lives, most of whom, if you look at, the, look at the stories through the Bible, most of whom perished in the way. Look at Israel. Most of them perished in the way, but a few men and women of God were receiving a crown of glory at the end of their lives. And there's just an example there. Jesus, the Son of God, is leaving us an example that he got up early in the morning. And this is one that is mentioned many times through the scriptures. Psalm 5 and verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Psalm 119, 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. Jehoshaphat 
rose early in the morning to meet the enemy as God commanded him. Hezekiah rose early to institute worship. 2 Chronicles 29.20 Ezra rose early to hear the word of the Lord. David rose early to meet the Philistines. And go do a search of how many times in the Old Testament the Bible mentions people rising early to do something for God, to get their mind right before God, to worship God, to go do a task that God had put forward for them. And I think that the reason why this is a reality and the reason why people do it is because when there is a weighty thing before you, the body, it's, it's almost impossible. You remember when you were a kid, uh, when Christmas was the next morning, did you sleep very well that night? And did you sleep very long that morning? No. Why? Because you were aware of the weight of tomorrow. Something really big is going to happen. The presents are going to be under the tree. And we're, our life's about to be changed. And we're going to have all this fun together and be with family and be with friends. And that anticipation is there, which doesn't allow you to sleep for long. And same thing with any other big event in your life whether it be a job interview or a marriage or a funeral or something, you, your body biologically does not allow you to sleep the day away when there's something big ahead of you. And the argument that I'm making is this life that we're living, there is not a, there's, it is not trite and it is not triv, trivial even in the mundane things. There's not a moment of this life that will have been for not, or that will have just happened that way. In four million years, think about this. In four million years, you and I are going to be somewhere. We'll be that, in that location a lot sooner than four million years. But we're going to be somewhere in four million years. And where's it going to be? And I guarantee that when we're there, wherever it is, whether it be heaven or whether it be hell, we're going to be thinking about these few short days and the things that we did in these few short days and how weighty every day and every hour and every moment of this life really and truly was bringing us to where we are. And there will either be supreme gratitude, thank you God for putting the weight of life on me to where I went out and I lived with the sobriety of knowing what I'm, what's really at stake here. Thank you for not letting me be someone who just slept through life but someone who was spiritually awakened all the while and who had the strength in my body to do the things that was needed to be done. So we need to rise early enough to meet God. That's how a Christian starts his day. He doesn't start by communicating with social media strangers. He starts by communicating with God. Number two, when you rise in the morning, consider your purpose. When I was in my uh, and this is an everyday thing. When you wake up, think about why am I here? What is my purpose? Why did God make me? Where am I going? When I was uh, kind of a late teen, uh, early 20s, I don't know if this is the right term to describe it, but it was an existential crisis of sorts that I had, uh, which I, I know you're not supposed to have until you hit about 50, but <laughs> mine, mine came very early, and actually it was, what, it was part of the trajectory that put me... Uh, all of my weight into ministry, actually. But my question was not a, a, the question of the existence of God. I knew 
I, I knew that. I felt very confident in his existence. I felt very confident in the Bible and uh, my standings in those particulars. But my question really was, uh, why did God make me? What's the purpose for my existence? Why am I here? And uh, I want you to listen to what, uh, what Paul says, and then I'm going to give you what the purpose is. But Paul, Paul is very clearly saying in this scripture, there's a purpose. I, I don't, I think sometimes we think that, you know, life is just this thing where you get up and you just, you do stuff. You, you make money so you can get to the weekend, so you can do enough of those, build up enough to go on a vacation. And then just have fun and those kinds of things. But that's not the way that a Christian sees his life. Paul says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Go go look up Usain Bolt, for example. Miranda and I saw him when we were living down in the Caribbean. He, He ran at a... Um, at our Cayman Islands National Track. And we saw this amazing human being in the flesh. And look at his regiment. Look at an Olympian. Look at a triathlete. Look at a marathoner. Look at those that are competing at the high level for an award. Look at the guys yesterday in the Kansas City Chiefs playoffs game. It was negative what? Negative, I don't know, it was super cold. It, it had, an, I think there was a negative 26 degree wind chill and it was the fourth coldest game in uh, NFL history. And they're out on the field in the frigid cold. Patrick Mahomes' arm was exposed and they're just playing this game. And that, at the end of the game, this lady was, at, was interacting with him, and she's saying, you know, how was it? How were the elements? You know, how did that affect it? And he said, look, we know we're, we're in Kansas City. We're going to have days like this. We have a job to do, and so we just went out and did it. Our mind was more so on what we're doing rather than the cold and the frigidness of it. But think about the, the things people are willing to do with their bodies to, to pass a football to the other end of a field. We're dealing with things that's eternally more significant than this. Do we see it? Consider your purpose when you wake in the morning. I scoured the scriptures in my early uh, uh, 20s. Oh, let, let me get to this part and then I'll, sh- I'll tell you that. So I, he says, so because of this, because we're, we're running, he says, I do not run aimlessly. I don't just kind of wake up, grab my phone, say, what am I going to do today? Let me meander. No, he says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. He's talking about his physical body. There's a connect between spiritual and physical. These things are not separated the way that we would maybe think they are as the Gnostics believed. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. He was aware that there was something ahead. He was aware that there are rules to it, that disqualification was a possibility. So he said, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box just beating the air. I have an object. There's somewhere that I'm going. And when I kind of had this big question in my mind, where's that place? What am I to be doing on the day in and day out? Besides heaven being the end goal, what am I to do on the ground every day? And I I stumbled across Isaiah 43, 7, where God is speaking to his people, and he says, "Everyone everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. And that was it. And I, I pondered over the fact that all of God's creation gives glory to God all the time. 
The stars are always doing it. The animals in the Serengeti are always doing it. The trees are always doing it. The birds are always doing it. So many things in all the world are always doing it. The one thing, the pinnacle, the chief of God's creation is the one thing of his creation that often doesn't even consider it to be giving glory to God. When I wake in the morning and I lay there in bed, I literally think in my mind, my purpose is to glorify God. And I ask my boys, boys, Judah, Zion, what is the chief end of man? I don't know if you heard it. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We bring it into the home. We talk about it, we think about it. We sit at the supper table and we talk about it. When we get up in the morning, I go in, get on my knees with the kids, and we have a prayer about it. At the end of the day, we have a family devotion and we sing songs together and we pray together and we read some scripture and we reinforce the big things because we know I'm not running aimlessly. I have a purpose here. It's not just to have fun. And yes, Christians have more fun than the world. I know that. And some of you who've been on both sides, you know it as well. We have fun. We enjoy life. It's a great life. It's a prospered life. But it's one with direction. And we have to consider that every single day when we get up. Third thing that we do, and this is, when I, if, if for those that are, uh, we got to forget about yesterday. That's what a Christian does. Let me show you a scripture for it, and then I'll um, say just a word about it. He says, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it, this prize of heaven. I don't consider that I've made it my own. It's not in my grasp yet. But one thing I do, there's one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the prize, excuse me, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. And that, by the way, upward call of God in, uh, I don't know how I just skipped multiple slides ahead. The upward call of God is a term for the resurrection. It's God calling you up. He's saying, that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm going there, that's my prize. I'm gonna be called out of the ground. I don't wanna die. I know my body's gonna die for a moment. I don't wanna stay in that grave forever. I want my body. I wanna be called up out of the grave by God. And so he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Well, think what way? Well, think, notice he's talking about the mind here. Forgetting, this is a mind thing. When you wake up in the morning, pray to God consider your purpose and then forget yesterday why yesterday's gone you can't go back there did you do something dumb you know what you do with it you don't live in a state of constant regret going back in your mind i i I shoulda i woulda i coulda i wish i had what you do is you take what happened yesterday and if there was a wrong if there's something bring it before the throne of God and confess it to him and put it under the blood of Jesus. That's how we do it. We take what regret remains from yesterday, bring it to the throne of God, confess it. God, I did this thing, whatever it was, I did it yesterday, I should not have. I don't wanna be that way. That's the old me. And you're making me into a new me. Take this new me, forgive me for yesterday. And you know what the promise is? He's faithful to forgive us of those things. We're being commanded by God to forget yesterday. 
The devil, if you pay attention, the devil will do a lot of work to get us to live in yesterday. One of the ways is by way of regret. The other way is by way of nostalgia. Don't you just remember how good things used to be back in the 50s? I hear that all the time from people in a generation. I, I wasn't there. I don't know what it was like. But you know what? I know there's something better to come. Forget yesterday. We're not there anymore. We can do nothing about yesterday. It is gone. The next thing that we need to do is never mind about tomorrow. Forget yesterday and never mind about tomorrow. The majority of anxiety that exists is out of a concern for tomorrow, um, which, by the way, tomorrow doesn't, is never really in our grasp, is it? Have you ever lived in tomorrow? Have you ever, a day in your life, ever reached tomorrow? What has the day always been? Today. There was a man who went to a restaurant and he saw a sign that said, free lunch tomorrow. So he came back the next day and he said, well, I'm here for the free lunch. And the hostess said, go look at the sign. Does tomorrow ever come? Most of our anxieties are usually not based in the present. We have regret based on the past, fear based on the future. I've never lived a day in the future. Most of the things I wish I'd known this in my late, late teens, early 20s, most of the things that I feared would come of me, or that I feared would happen, never happened, not even close. It just doesn't exist. Tomorrow doesn't exist. But I know who does hold tomorrow. It exists for one. It exists for the one who declares the end from the beginning. So I want to be every day, every morning, I want to be on his side because I know where I want to be at the end. If he holds tomorrow in his hand and he can say something about it and I never can, I'm just going to get on his side. So when tomorrow does come, guess where I'll be? I'll be with him. Come what may. It may be different than I thought. Listen to this quote from um, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you've read it, but it's, it's just a magnificent read. But C.S. Lewis said, in a word, the future is of all things the thing least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time. He doesn't mean temporal in the second definition. Like he's not saying time redundantly. He means it he means temporal in um, like worldly as opposed to spiritual. It's, it's the thing of the world. The future is the most completely temporal or worldly part of time. He says, for the past is frozen and no longer flows. You can't go back there. What's done is done. That's what it is. That can't change. And the present is all lit up with eternal rays. God is at work now in the present. Then he says, hence the encouragement that we human beings have given to all those schemes of thought, such as creative evolution, scientific humanism, or communism, which fix men's affections on the future, on the very core of temporality. Hence, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present, fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead 
do not think lust an exception. That's a powerful quote. Jesus said, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Anxiety is that feeling of sitting at the ready of what's coming, I don't know what's coming, and I want to control it, but guess what? I don't have control over it. So Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life. And we're going to have a lesson on anxiety. Um, actually, probably a couple of lessons. So all the stuff in between, we're talking about the birds of the air, there's so much there, and also the Philippians 4, 6 passage. We're going to get to that, but I just want you to see this one thing he's saying about your life, your daily routine. He says, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. The, by command of the Lord, don't bite off more than you can chew. I can't take a bite of tomorrow. Just get a hold of today. I wake up, I forget yesterday, I'm going to get a hold of today. And what's, what's right in front of me? What do I need to do right now? Jordan Peterson says, start by making your bed. Well, start by praying and then make your bed or do whatever it is at home that you need to do and then go do the next thing. But keep yourself in time. Don't keep your mind somewhere that doesn't even exist yet. He says, tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So this is how a Christian wakes up. They wake up and they pray to God. They wake up and they consider their purpose. What am I get, what, what's my real purpose? I know I gotta go to work. I know I gotta go to the bank. I know I gotta take out a home loan. But what's my real purpose? I'm here to glorify God. So what's that gonna mean when I'm taking out the home loan? And by the way, we're gonna talk about that. What's that gonna mean when I go to work? How do I do it at work? How do I do it with my peers at school? And then a Christian forgets about yesterday and he does not worry about tomorrow just trusts God has good control over tomorrow. And the last thing that we do, and maybe this is one of the most important, this is something that I do it every day. When I wake up in the morning, in Romans chapter 12 and verse one, I just preached Romans for three years. 150 something sermons back in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. When we got to Romans chapter 12, after 11 chapters of the deepest theology, I think that exists in the New Testament, maybe in all the Bible, Paul makes an appeal based on this gospel that we have and salvation by faith and redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ and his atonement for our sins and God rescuing us out of death and slavery when we were the enemies of God and he brought us into his household and he made us his sons and he's given us this future glory and he sealed us with the spirit in the present who is helping us now and Jesus is advocating for us and God's working all things together for good. This is back to chapter eight. Then he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship and that's this is the verse right here and this word that he uses here for present and by the way he's talking here look all in the context we will eventually he's talking about this physical vessel hands feet hair eyes teeth lungs heart he says take it and present it to God as a living sacrifice. What, what I just do this, I'm laying there in bed, I'm praying to him, I'm thinking of my purpose. I say, God, this body's not mine. It isn't mine. I, we live in a time where people think the body is all theirs to do all they want with it. My body, my choice, right? But it's not. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
And the way that begins is by getting it into my mind. I'm laying in bed. I'm thinking about the day. I don't know what's going to come today. I just know some general things of it. I'm going to interact with my wife and with my kids. I'm going to go do some things at work. I'm going to drive. I'm going to be at the grocery store. What do I do? I, I say, God, here's my body. This is yours. Use it today as a living sacrifice. It's yours. I'm going to give it to you every single day. When I wake up, here's my body. Use it. That's how a Christian wakes up. So my encouragement is Christians should live differently than the world. Our peers, our friends, maybe even we reach up and the first thing we do is grab the phone. Don't. Lay in bed and talk with your creator. Consider the reason for why he made you and it is for big things far beyond what we can comprehend. Forget about yesterday. Don't mind about tomorrow. And present your body to God as a living sacrifice. And you will have a different kind of day. I promise you that. If you have any need at all, if you need to come to Jesus and give him your life, he is knocking and he is waiting and he is merciful and he is good. If you need wisdom, if you need prayers, if you need the help of the church, instruction from the elders, there's an opportunity now to let that be known while we stand and sing.